16 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American Space Program in the 1960s. And I'm Leila McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet, and I am currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. Okay, so before we jump into the episode, um, we want to do our drawing for everyone who left a review for us on uh, iTunes. And um, these reviews and ratings really mean a lot to us because we don't pay to advertise the show anywhere. So every time you rate and review us, it helps us get boosted a little bit more so that more people can find us on iTunes whatever culture algorithm they have that says we're important enough to put on their front page. So, <laughs> so okay, let me pull someone out of here. All right, so the person named C.M. Bazilla uh, is going to be winning a swag bag from us. So uh, they said in their review, Lady Science always focuses on incredibly interesting topics in the history of science and gender, linking them with contemporary problematics and events, and the hosts are super entertaining too. Thank you very much. Aww, I often find myself actually laughing out loud while listening. Highly recommend. So thank you, CM Bazilla. And if you will email us at ladiescienceinfo at gmail.com so that we can get your information, um, we will send you your swag bag. So thank you very much. And if those of you out there listening like the show, please be sure that you leave us a rating and a review. Um, as well. And we'll do some more of these drawings throughout the year. Um, so uh, thank you. Okay, so uh, let's get on to the show. Um, so in 2018, museums were in the news a lot, uh, which is really exciting to me because uh, I'm a museum person. Um, though it, you know, sometimes it's for good reasons and sometimes it's for not great reasons, as is so often the case. Um, in particular, uh, there were a number of really interesting high-profile incidents that highlighted the role that museums and their collections play in colonialization and slavery and empire uh, and the way that, frankly, they continue to prop up white supremacy. So just here's just a couple of those stories that stood out to us. Um, first of all, there uh, was Alice Proctor and her uncomfortable art tours. Uh, Proctor made headlines giving these tours at a number of different British museums, including the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery and the British Museum itself. And uh, these tours, she um, 
talks about the ugly and mostly glossed over history of the subjects of famous paintings. And she does that by highlighting the, the roles of those subjects in um, colonialization and slavery. And if you look at her website, which is really fascinating also, um, she has a digital tour of many of the paintings, and you will find portraits of Queen Elizabeth with the word slaver graffitied across her face, um, or a portrait of Lord Nelson with a uh, white supremacist across it. Uh, so just to, that gives you a sense, even if you can't go on one of her great tours, of uh, the sort of work that she is doing. Um, also last year in August, the British Museum, which holds the largest collection of human culture in the world, returned 80 artifacts to Iraq. And then in November, France came into the spotlight when two academics, uh, Benedictine Zavoy and Felwine Saar, produced a report that found that 90 to 95% of African heritage is found outside of Africa, which is insane. <laughs> France alone holds at least 90,000 artifacts from Africa. Uh, in the report, Savoy and Saar recommended the restitution, which is fancy museum language for return, of uh, any objects that were taken through, quote, inequitable conditions. Uh, and that included objects acquired by the military or uh, by diplomats or as part of scientific expeditions. So with all of that in mind, today we're going to take a look at what part science has played in amassing these modern-day collections in the West, and uh, basically why 90-95% of African heritage is outside of Africa. Um, and as part of that, maybe we'll even talk a little bit about what we can do about it. Uh, we also will be joined a little bit later by Myra Gold, a historian of archaeology, who is going to talk to us about uh, Victorian archaeology in Egypt. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about archaeology. So archaeology was integral to the way that European countries went about building their empires. Uh, European archaeologists and explorers extracted artifacts from the colonies that they occupied, and those are the objects that are we're talking about that are still in Western museums. Um, but archaeology was much more than just sort of collecting for the sake of filling museums. It was also a way of creating knowledge about um, indigenous people in the colonies and their history. So. On this type of knowledge production in archaeology, Jane Lydon and Uzma Rizvi say that, quote, people all over the world have been dealing with their past in manifold ways before Western knowledge arrived. Therefore, what we do most of the time is recover their history for us so that we can make sense of them, um, end quote. So this type of colonial knowledge production, which is based on the extraction of artifacts kind of sets up Westerners and Western archaeology as a gatekeeper of knowledge for the rest of the world. This is sort of how um, Western people, you know, go and extract this knowledge about other people in other places um, in some ways, sort of regardless of whether that matches up with the history that those people have of their themselves. Um, we should think about, um, you know, artifacts uh, as something that we can consider like should you know the British Museum have all of this stuff from Africa or should they take it back but we, we should also think about the underlying knowledge production 
that happens when those artifacts are removed uh, and then taken to the British Museum or wherever and um, the way that they sort of structure our under our Western understanding of other cultures and of like colonized places. I was just like, can I just say that the uh, statement people all over the world have been dealing with their past in manifold ways before Western knowledge arrived should not be such a re- not re- such a remarkable statement, but it just is kind of the thing that I feel like. A lot of archaeologists, both in the past and today, and a lot of museum professionals, both in the past and today, don't really think about, and that in and of itself says something about the way we think about knowledge from non-Western places. There, yeah, I think there's a sense that, like, we, uh, Western folk assume, first of all, that, um, history is done the way everywhere the way that people do it in the west and that people yeah. like that there's like one way to write history kind of those like there's one scientific method uh that there's one way that it's done and uh you know white people are the ones who <laughs> figured that out and this right. like assumption that that people like that colonized people don't have a sense of their own history or don't yes. have a practice for understanding their own history when actually a lot of the time the like artifacts that are removed from places are that practice for people but we just assume that like uh the only the only culture capable of like writing history is western culture and that's why we have to like take stewardship of the rest of the world's history but like that's everybody has a sense of their own history just do it differently than you know going into other countries and like pillaging all of their cool stuff yeah and this type of uh gatekeeping um wasn't just creating knowledge about people other than themselves. They were creating knowledge about themselves as well. Um, that this type of gatekeeping helped Western scholars to create these racial categories that we've talked about on mm-hmm. this podcast before, the scientific racism. Um, and it also helps them create a self-stylized European identity that was above and in opposition to indigenous people and the people that they were colonizing. The 19th century archeologists weren't the first ones to do this kind of identity building. In classical times, Greeks and Romans looked at quote, barbarian nations to bolster their own identities of Greekness and Romanness. And if this sounds familiar to you, that would be because these are Western identifications that white supremacists still, in this current day, still invoke to promote their notions of, quote, civilization and whiteness. And what this type of identity building did was construct the people that they colonized as an other while bolstering themselves as, quote, the normal image of civilization and whiteness. And so All of this is to say that when we talk about these artifacts in museums, we're not just talking about physical objects. We're talking about a people's culture and heritage and who we see as having ownership over them, both in the past and today. One of the things that uh, popped out at me about, like, the the fact that, you know, the Greeks and the Romans were doing this othering um, before the... 19th century westerners came along and did that that's just like a beautiful hilarious terrible awful 
no good, very bad irony, is that I'm pretty darn sure that a lot of the time the Greeks and the Romans were talking about, like, the Gauls and the Anglo-Saxons when they were mm -hmm. talking about, like, the uh, barbarian other. Um, and not that it makes it okay, but now, of course, for um, white supremacists today, um, their authority and whiteness and supremacy uh, stems for them from being Gauls and Anglo-Saxons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's well, and terrible. Like, so much of some of the conversations and debates um, going on in among medieval scholars and kind of the frankly very violent backlash that medieval scholars who are saying that these times weren't just full of white people, right. <laughs> actually, that there were a lot of brown people involved in these cultures and these empires and um, that, and then, you know, they say that and then they get this like enormous violent racist backlash, not just from within the field, but from without the, without the field who are trying to claim these identity that these um these cultures and identify with the whiteness of them not the diversity of them this identity building that these is still just deeply embedded in our consciousness of what civilization means yeah and who's included in that civilization yeah and to bring us back to objects, I think it is super important to remember the role that those objects played in, in creating those 19th century uh, racial categories. Um, because, yeah, as you said, uh, I think it's it's terrible enough that, hey, can, like that, that a bunch of white people went into Africa and just took a bunch of stuff. Um, but then they used that stuff to prove that proof, quotes, air, like bunny ears all over the place, um, that the people who created these objects were inferior in some way. And I think that that's honestly the part that sometimes gets left out of the conversation about uh, what to do with um, non-Western objects in the West, is like we kind of get to the level of even, even people who support repatriation um, get to the level of sort of we we should give this stuff back because we stole it. But there's this, like, in dar darker, insidi more insidious level of we should give this stuff back because we stole it and then used it to tell lies about other people. And, of course, the practice of collecting and the notion of ownership to make this even grosser um, went beyond artifacts um, and objects to include insects and animals and also people. And this is another one of those things where it's like, you've got to, that underlines the, the racist goals of collecting objects in, in the colonial, in the colonies, which is that people were thought of as fascinating scientific objects in the same way that uh, clay pots were. And that's just so awful. And one of the most infamous cases that we're going to talk about for a little bit um, of people collecting was uh, the story of Sarah Bartram. Um, Bartram was a South African woman who was taken into domestic servitude in 1810 by a Dutch trader, um, Pieter William Cesar, 
I apologize to all Dutch speakers out there. Um, and then she was passed into the ownership of his friend, um, an English surgeon named William Dunlop. Dunlop and his brother took Bartram to London, uh, where she was displayed in Piccadilly Circus. She was stripped naked and given a loincloth to wear and displayed in a cage side by side with animals. Um, and Europeans paid money to ogle at her. Uh, one of the things, this is just, would be terrible anywhere, but if anyone has ever been to Piccadilly Circus today or seen, photo, or seen um, drawings of Piccadilly Circus in the 19th century, like, I feel like you have to imagine the just like crazy touristy madness that Piccadilly Circus pretty much has always been to underline just how horrifying this is. Um, mm -hmm. When I was reading about this, it just like Piccadilly Circus immediately popped into my head as it looks today and just, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So after that, she was transported from England to France and suffered similar indignities there. Uh and while there, her she caught the interest of a uh, naturalist, uh, Georges Cuvier. He sort of brought her into his circles of men of science and used her for scientific observation, uh, even against her like actual protestations. Um, that didn't seem to matter to Cuvier or anybody really. Um, so there are two parts of, I'm just going to preface this by saying this is really upsetting. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Um, there were two parts of her body that Cuvier took particular notice of. Um, Bartman had, um, oh gosh, sorry. Steatopedia? Is that how you say it? I think so. Oh boy. That sounds right. Um, which is a, a large accumulation of fat in the buttocks and a hyperatrophied labia, meaning that her labia were larger than most women. And so for for Varman, both of these things would be they're totally normal among her people, Kosin women. Um, but to white Europeans, this was seen as like a freakish abnormality. And anatomists and zoologists <laughs> studied her. Um, and ultimately Cuvier determined that um, she wasn't really a person, that <laughs> she was a, the, like, missing link between, um, animals and humans, and that she represented this kind of, like, uh, primitive form of, of humanity, uh, based on, you know, what she looked like, basically. Um, and so when Bartman died, uh, at the age of 26, Cuvier, had her body dissected uh, at the National Museum of Natural History, um, and they conserved uh, they conserved her vulva and anus, and they made a plaster of her body that was displayed at the oh my French is terrible at the Musée de l'Homme until uh, nineteen seventy four, like nineteen seventy four. 1974. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, and um, I think there's a, a lot of things that we can say about this story, uh, a lot of things, and particularly how this objectification of uh, a black woman's body endures today. Um, and I encourage listeners to read what black women have written about this. Um, there's a lot. 
Um, and there's particularly a piece by Natasha Wansa titled The Tragic Story of Sarah Bartman and the Enduring Objectification of Black Women. And we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, one of the things that um, I think we should highlight, though, is that this was an objectification that was legitimized by scientific institutions and then preserved by them. Um, so South African authorities demanded to have um, Bart Bartman's body returned to them in 1994. Um, but because she was considered to be part of the French national collection and thus under their ownership, their demand was denied. Um, in order to have her body returned, there would have had to have been an adoption of a formal act to deaccession her body from the National Museum in order to return it to South Africa. So the act required an acknowledgement that France no longer had scientific interest in the remains. And the act did pass. Um, and from what I was reading, and I'll link to this in the show notes as well, is that the French government kind of did it because they didn't want to keep being bothered anymore. <laughs> By this issue. Which is um, honestly, I feel like, pretty much why these things, when, like, repatriation oh, does happen, that's why. Right, Because someone exactly. is tired of the letters. Right. Um, and so the act did pass, and she was returned to Africa in 2002. Um, and uh, just a reminder that she, you know, entered into servitude in 1810. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, almost 200 years for any sort of justice uh, is a really long time. Um, and when she was returned, they had a ceremony, uh, a burial and everything. Um, but I think that it's, you can't highlight enough that, that it was because of some sort of scientific legitimacy that kept her body, um, the property of a museum. Yeah. Um, and so when we're talking about returning artifacts to their country of origin, um, that the issue of ownership and of scientific ownership um, plays a big role in why, you know, France can't just like put all of these things on a plane and ship them back to Africa because this type of cultural ownership is just ensconced in the actual like law and procedures of you know, European nations and European museums. Yeah. And one of, one of the things uh, that, yeah, that significance of, like, does this still have scientific value can, as, as a reason for not repatriating things, is just so embedded. Uh, um, so in the United States, there is um, a law called NAGPRA, which I had to just look up um, what it stood for, because I always forget exactly what it stands for. Um, it's Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Um, as far as, like, there are a lot of terrible things about the U.S. government and uh, relationship to indigenous people, but my understanding or feeling is that NAGPRA is actually, like, compared to other Western nations and their relationship with people they have colonized, is pretty good. Like, it's one of the better ones. And yet, one of the things that uh, museums and scientific institutions and governmental bodies can flag as, oh, we're not going to return this, is, well, it might still have scientific value. And 
So even for like one of these regulations that's a pretty relatively good system, um, I don't want to be like NAGPRA's great because there are problems. <laughs> even for that, like this, this kind of calling to scientific authority as a reason to um, not give things back that have been used by scientific authorities to come up with racism is deeply frustrating. And I was thinking about the, the historical case of this too, like, I think that while the story is not as well known as it should be, like, Sarah Barton's story is relatively well known. Um, and I think um, there are, like, lots of other instances of, of, like, people collecting that you can kind of look at to understand, like, the importance of, like, um, of her being declared, like, a, of, a, of scientific interest. Because, like, um, up until, you know, even the early 20th century, like, people were displayed at, like, world's fairs as, like, cultural curiosities. Um, they were just sort of um, put in, you know, traditional garb and, like, made to, like, do traditional things so that people going through world's fairs could, like, gawk at them and stuff. And I think we are much more ready to say, like, that's bad. We should not gawk at people as curiosities that way. But if you just inject this idea that, like, oh, well, they were studying Sarah Bartram, Sarah Bartram to, like, right. understand her anatomy and stuff, uh, like, there's still this, like, undercurrent of, like, certain things are justifiable in the interest of scientific advancement. And, like, I think maybe the most uh, case that we have talked about on this podcast before is this, like, the people who still want to defend um, J. Mary and Sims for experimenting on enslaved black women because there was, like, scientific merit to what he did and that he, like, um, invented a new procedure uh, through these experimentations. Uh, and people are still totally fine to just defend that and say that, you know, that's an acceptable uh, thing. It's bound by the norms of its time, I guess, for some people, maybe not for others, but that, like, uh, as long as we can extract some kind of scientific value, um, that there is, like, a sliding scale of, like, acceptable human suffering. And that's something that we really need to... <laughs> interrogate about our sort of cultural relationship to science because that's extremely yeah. dangerous yeah. yeah and i want to head off anyone who says well they were from a different time um because um when she got to europe there were um anti-slavery people that were advocating vehemently for her release and for her to go back to africa mm -hmm. so you know, it's not like there was nobody around to insert some sort of dissent into what was going on. There were concerted campaigns to put an end to what was happening to her. Right. Also, she did not want to be put into slavery and, like, uh, oogled by Europeans. She right. said so, but... Yeah. But be there was an issue when she first uh, went... Um, that she apparently, allegedly, signed a contract to go. 
um, with the agreement that she would be a domestic servant and she would be um, put on display um, in return for money, like that she would also receive payment. Um, and then after five years of that, she would be allowed to return back to Africa. So there's a lot of problems with, you know, the idea that she signed a contract willingly with informed consent because she actually could not read or write. Um, so, you know, she didn't have the same understanding, cultural understanding, or even just literacy that would have allowed her to enter into an agreement that was written by <laughs> um, a European man. The whole terms of the conditions were directed by someone who had her already in domestic servitude. So, and after, you know, after a famous naturalist declares you not a human and the missing link between humans right, and animals, right. uh, you don't have any say in anything at that point because yeah. you're not a person. Yep. Right. And also remember that, uh, her remains and uh, the remains of many other people taken under circumstances like this, um, governments and institutions can still make the argument that this has scientific value, therefore I don't have to give it back. So, like, with, with this story, like, in this century, someone said, no, it can't, her bones can't go back to Africa because science. It's, mm -hmm. it, it, that, that part is still there. Um... There, I think that it's also just kind of a dirty secret of a lot of legacy natural history museums that there are human remains that have, like, they've lost the papers for um, and haven't been cataloged uh, or in, in the way that many things in museums just, like, end up being not cataloged uh, and that the efforts to go through and catalog them and find out where they should actually go back to uh, is spotty. And some institutions have um, dedicated themselves to doing that, and some institutions haven't. And a lot of the institutions that haven't, it's because that would involve admitting that they had done this in the first place. Uh, and that is really messy. And is, and is kind of, again, I think, cuts against this idea that, well, things were different back then because um, there still isn't a willingness to acknowledge it even now. One of the things um, I want to talk about uh, that is, I think, related to all of this is a um, movement. I'm going to call it a movement. Yeah. Um, a movement that's become significant in uh, the museum world over the last couple of years. Uh, and that is, um, it's just called Museums Are Not Neutral. Um, this was started by Latanya Autry and Mike Murkowski, uh, who are two museum professionals. Uh, they have put a lot of effort into spreading what is honestly a very, very basic idea, which is that museums of all types have been sites of white supremacy, and um, both in terms of their collecting practices, in terms of who gets to be an authority in a museum, uh, in terms of who today is employed at museums and who feels comfortable in museums, and 
that the choices that curators and educators and conservationists and collections managers make uh, are, like everything, driven by uh, internalized and externalized biases. Um, and this is one of those things that's also become a part of the conversation when you because people say, well, museums can't be political. And it's like, what museums choose to say or not say is inherently political. Uh, and it's, it's true on many levels, but I think that uh, this legacy of museums and what they collect and why they collect it is just a... Um, one of the most intense and upsetting examples of this issue of museums not being neutral. Uh, so yeah, I encourage you to uh, seek the two of them out on social media. They're both great. You can also get t-shirts that say museums are not neutral. They are awesome t-shirts. I recommend them. <laughs> and we'll put a link yes. to that in the show notes yeah. so that you can read a little bit more about what they're all about. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a good time to bring in our interview yeah. guests for today. So let's go ahead and get Mira in. Okay, so uh, with us here today we have Mira Gold and uh, Mira is working on her PhD at Cambridge University where she researches archaeological field recording practices and knowledge construction about ancient Egypt. Uh, so welcome to the show, Mira. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're excited to have you. And uh, just to get us started, um, can you tell us just a little bit more about your research and what you do? Of course, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I researched the history of Victorian Egyptology, and my PhD specifically is looking at the emergence of archaeological fieldwork as a practice in semi colonial Egypt from about 1850 to the early 1900s and broadly how that corresponds to developments in the natural and human sciences. Um, and I got interested in that specific topic because a lot of histories of British Egyptology, they tend to say that archaeological fieldwork developed only in the 1880s after um, an organization called the Egypt Exploration Fund was established and after uh, the British uh, occupied Egypt in 1882. And those same histories tend to give the kind of great man treatment to certain archaeologists like William Matthew Flinders Petrie, who they credit with pioneering all of these scientific uh, field practices kind of out of thin air. Uh, <laughs> and they partly uh, make that assumption um, because between the 1850s and the 1880s, there were very few British Egyptologists working in Egypt. They were, of course, traveling they were writing, they were sketching, and they were definitely collecting antiquities and mummies and objects, um, but very few were excavating, and that was because the Egyptian Antiquities Service was controlled by the French, and they held okay. a monopoly over archaeological permits. Uh, but when I started researching this topic, I actually found that British practitioners dealt with those colonial limitations by establishing these vast correspondence networks and using archaeological informants in Egypt who they would use to extract information and to sort of record on their behalf and then they would analyze artifacts and key information back in the metropole. Uh, metropole. So 
my thesis really traces, traces this crucial development in Egyptology um, from this activity that could be practiced uh, long distance in London through a network of informants to one that required first-hand excavation experience, but in the process also became this overtly masculinized sort of heroic affair by the early 20th century. Um, one of the things that you write about is how Egypt became central to the Victorians' understanding of the antiquity of man. And there was one episode in particular in the 1850s that you write about involving the British geologist Leonard Horner and an Armenian-Egyptian engineer named Joseph Hekekian that showed how artifacts were used as the basis to understand human antiquity. So can you tell us a little bit about this story and what it can tell us about competing knowledges about a human past? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Leonard Horner was the Scottish geologist. He was probably best known um, at the time as this educationalist and social reformer, but also as this highly respected geologist. And he used his authoritative role in the Geological Society of London in the late 1840s and through the 1850s, basically to encourage uh, other geologists to start talking about human antiquity. Because questions like how old humans were and where humans had originated from and the big racial question of the day, uh, were humans one species or many species, these were uh, well, in general, controversial questions, but they were especially off-limits to geologists, at least in uh, public debate. So while a lot of his uh, geological colleagues uh, in the 1850s started looking at things like flint tools, hand axes, uh, to provide answers to some of those questions, Horner investigated river sedimentation in Egypt because he thought between the annual Nile flooding and historical artifacts in Egypt that he could uh, estimate how long humans had been living there. And so he got joint funding from the Royal Society of London and the, Egyptian, the Ottoman Egyptian government, and he enlisted uh, Joseph Hekekian, or Yusuf Hekekian, to be his personal informant or his field assistant. Hekekian was this uh, very talented engineer with really extraordinary drafting skills. Uh, he was born in Istanbul, but he had been educated in Britain. And then he moved to Egypt, where he became really active in various modernization projects. And on Horner's behalf, Hekekian supervised four years of geological, archaeological excavations in ancient Memphis and ancient Heliopolis, which are both near Cairo. Um, and Hekekian sent back hundreds of reports and letters and sketches and maps uh, to Horner. And they concluded uh, that, quote, civilized humans had lived in Egypt for exactly 13,371 years. Um, it was very specific. <laughs> Uh, uh, some Victorians thought it was really important research and others dismissed it entirely. Um, but the whole episode is significant, I think, for a few reasons. Um, one, because it was this period where there were really enormous uh, disciplinary changes to Victorian studies of the deep human past. And the episode, I think, highlights how porous those boundaries were between things like geology, ethnology, philology, archaeology, and especially biblical studies. 
and how various tools, ideas, and practices were exchanged by representatives of those individual communities. So for example, it was the first time that geological stratigraphy as a tool was applied to human uh, chronology, which is pretty significant. But the episode also shows some of the ways that scientific knowledge, uh, in this case, archeological knowledge was managed over long distance, uh, over long distances in the imperial age, and the divisions of labor within those networks of communication. Um, and then I think most interestingly, uh, it points to the important role that Egypt played in debates about human antiquity and the prehistoric past in Britain. Um, it shows how not just ancient materials, but especially how Egyptian labor and Egyptian knowledge informed some of those debates. You said that um, that they dated civilization or civilized people for um, what was what did they see as the marker of civilization? What was the distinction there? Mm. Uh, so in this, I mean, I think a lot people had different markers. Um, uh, for what constituted civilization at that point. But mm -hmm. for Horner and Hekekian, it was the ability to make pottery. So they mm -hmm. found um, evidence of pottery and uh, burnt mud brick sort of really far down in the ground. And so they said, uh, you know, this is evidence that humans who were capable of making pottery, meaning they were civilized enough to do this, uh, they had the cognitive abilities to do this, um, uh, had been living in Egypt for that long. That was uh, essentially their argument. Uh, one thing also that is interesting from what you said and also your point earlier about a lot of traditional looking at Egyptian um, or British um, archaeologists in Egypt is this idea that it starts much later. Uh, but there was um, this correspondence going on uh, between obviously people like uh, Horner and Hekekian. And it's just fascinatingly predictable to me <laughs> the way that clearly a bunch of labor that was happening is sort of erased in those traditional heroic narratives about the British dudes going out into the field in Egypt and making these grand discoveries. I think so, yeah. And I think it also like um, kind of points to some of the <clears throat> value judgments that historians have made about what actually counts as archaeological work at any yeah. given point and who gets <laughs> incorporated into those stories. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about Hekekian and um, kind of this idea that he, he was sort of required to present as a gentleman in order to, you know, do this work and to be, you know, taken seriously. Um, and so can you just talk a little bit about what that means about like gentlemanly norms for Victorians and, and why is it important, particularly for Hekekian? Yeah, definitely. Uh, being a gentleman or gentlemanly scientist in mid 19th century Britain, um, but definitely before that as well, uh, it meant that you were relatively wealthy, of course, well-read, you were white, and it was a primary mechanism to assert masculine scientific authority. More than that, it meant you could pursue science as a vocation or a passion because you didn't need to do it for money. Um, and supposedly this made their work disinterested. Uh, so there was this uh, moral economy around gentlemanly trust in the sciences in general at this time. 
Um, and because Hekekian was not white, the onus was on himself and on Horner to prove that he was trustworthy in that way. Um, and that was feasible because Hekekian had this kind of liminal status. Um, uh, you know, in Egypt, he was part of the, uh, definitely part of the bureaucratic elite, um, but he had grown up in Egypt, in a, sorry, he had basically grown up in Britain. Um, and he was also this Catholic Armenian and he felt isolated often in Egypt. Uh, it was his, his adopted home, but he was constantly made to feel like a foreigner there. But he also embraced that. He embraced being this like Anglophile. Uh, and he became this point of contact for Europeans who were uh, in Egypt who called him this, quote, Europeanized Oriental. Um, and he, he embraced that in a way. Uh, and in the field, he was at the very top of the labor hierarchy with other Egyptian supervisors, foremen, workers, including men, women, and children working underneath him. And he presented himself to Horner as not just this reliable field assistant who could you know, do this work on his behalf, but he also challenged Horner to take his intellectual input seriously. And that was the difficulty for Horner when uh, it came to representing him and his work uh, in Britain, because on one hand, Horner had to uh, um, for, for this long-distance style of investigation to be valid, he had to demonstrate that Hekekian was this trustworthy colleague um, and that the, you know, everything he sent him, the information he sent him was credible. But he also had to demonstrate his superiority to him. So he sold this gentlemanly version of Hekekian who had not been financially compensated for the work he was doing, ergo he could be trusted. Um, <laughs> But he also sold him as this like superstar field worker who on one hand was educated in the natural sciences and spoke and wrote perfectly in English and French and German, just like Horner and other gentlemanly scientists. But unlike Horner, he was, because this was the argument, because of his ethnicity, he could handle the hot climate supposedly. And he could, <laughs> um, and, and he definitely could mediate between uh, the Arabic speaking field workers and Turkish-speaking government administrators in Egypt. Um, I think one of the more, most interesting things from that is how Hekekian had to fight to be taken up this way. And still, it only worked on some audiences mm -hmm. in uh, Britain. Uh, essentially, people who responded well to Horner and Hekekian's conclusions about human antiquity were like, yeah, Hekekian, he's this stand-up guy. Um, and some of those people were pretty influential um, thinkers, like geologist Charles Lyell. Uh, but those who didn't respond to the, well to the research itself attacked Hekekian and his Egyptian field team using, uh, utilizing racist arguments, you know, saying that Egyptians will basically find whatever we ask them to find, they can't be trusted, they're not capable of empirical observation, or they're specifically trying to trick Horner. So to those reviewers, Hekekian was pigeonholed as just, you know, an Egyptian and could never be taken up as a gentleman. It's a reminder of, for me, kind of how long something like respectability politics has been part of so much of people of color trying to make a name for themselves and, and also that the limits of respectability politics and like the pitfalls of it have been around for a very long time uh in hearing this story um you know this this guy tries so hard to make himself into the the perfect victorian gentleman um and 
<laughs> is kind of a jerk about it, but he has to be. Uh, but he's still, like, there's still plenty of people who just won't take him seriously. And Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is they take him seriously when it's useful for them. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, he actually, Akekian went on to publish his own book um, mm-hmm. on, on this topic, and Horner published, <clears throat> published that for him in Britain. Um, it was not well circulated, but it's interesting because when you look at all these travelogues from, um, and, and diaries and correspondence from throughout this period, over and over again, there's all these Europeans, archaeologists, colonial officials going to Egypt and saying, Hekekian, he's great. He gave me this reference to this person. They're clearly, they really um, need him and appreciate him as this sort of this go-between, this mediator. But they don't want to take him seriously, um, you know, intellectually in some of their debates in Britain, which is interesting. Right. Uh, so that gives us a good idea of kind of how race and ethnicity was so significant to authority and being a gentlemanly scientific authority. Um, We are, of course, lady science, so uh, are there other instances or um, ways that you can talk about how gender played a role in um, Victorian science circles and how to create authority? In general, uh, you know, Victorian women who were... um, uh, participating in Egyptological debate were just as knowledgeable and experienced as a lot of their male counterparts. That shouldn't be a surprise. Um, you know, they were well read. A lot of them had been to Egypt. They attended society meetings uh, and more. Um, and initially, upper class women generally found their authority in things like, uh, you know, for instance, translating texts. So Horner's daughters, uh, sometimes called the Horneritas, which is fun. Oh, um, God. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, they had uh, done a lot of work translating Egyptology books um, from, say, German to English for uh, Victorian audiences. Um, other women wrote really uh, popular travelogues um, about their time on the Nile, and especially towards uh, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, they were really active in archaeological fundraising. fundraising. And that was essential because in Egypt at this time, in this time, funds for excavations were essentially crowdsourced from the Victorian public. So women played a huge role in the media publicity machine. Um, and uh, by the early 20th century, uh, there were some women like Margaret Murray, who I know you've had Kathleen Shepard talk about on the podcast before, found um, authority in the classroom, um, teaching students before they went to Egypt. Uh, and then also around that same time, women started participating in archaeological digs, doing a lot of uh, the transcribing and drawing Uh, copying, drawing things like pottery, producing maps, really important stuff. But there were also arguments about how women were not suited to this work. They were not suited to such, you know, dirty work, essentially. Uh, Or uh, there were arguments that, you know, women could... um, they could accompany their husbands on archaeological digs. In some cases, they could do their own excavations. 
but they shouldn't be on um, what was sometimes called mixed excavations because essentially um, they would be distracting to men. So <laughs> it was not just um, these debates about, you know, um, um, who had the appropriate expertise to be an authoritative voice, but it was also about who um, was suited to certain work. And I think uh, that, you know, the figure of the heroic male Egyptologist um, was specifically constructed to make someone like William Matthew Flinders Petrie look like the only one who was doing work. Mm -hmm. The process of like publicizing excavations in Egypt made um, you know, the Victorian women and um, all the Egyptians who were doing most of the technical and manual labor largely invisible. Um, so they, you know, they couldn't be the public authorities or the face of Egyptology. We've talked a lot about um, on this episode about collections and museums and how they are still tied up in these racist and sexist Victorian ideas of authority, um, some of which we've just talked about. Um, so how have you seen that play out in your research specifically? So I think what, you know, something that comes up for me a lot are the common um, racist narratives that Victorians sort of manufactured to legitimize their colonial presence in Egypt, but then also to legitimize uh, what they were bringing back to museums in Britain and how they were doing that. And they oscillated sort of between these like two opposing narratives that kind of worked in tandem. On one hand, they claimed that Egyptians were passive. They didn't care about their pharaonic past, um, supposedly because they were less civilized on these you know, universal racial hierarchies. Um, on the other hand, they claimed that Egyptians were actively damaging archaeological remains. Uh, for, in, for instance, you know, dismantling architecture, or the big, the big one was digging up sites um, on the archaeological off-seasons. So you know, in that light, Victorians could market archaeology and museum scholarship as this really urgent um, almost altruistic preservation practice, you know, um, and you know they were saving Egypt, uh, Egypt's antiquities from the country's modern inhabitants. Um, and if like that sounds familiar, it's because <laughs> <laughs> you know those narratives are still perpetuated in so many ways, um, yep. and it comes up over and over again with Egyptian uh, collections. Um, I think like maybe like a really good example, um, recent example was uh, this fiasco with Tutankhamun's mask uh, back in 2015. Um, you know, Tutankhamun's mask is basically it's one of the most iconic, I think, objects in the public imagination of ancient Egypt, and it's in the Cairo Museum in Egypt, which has the largest collection of Egyptian antiquities in the world. Um, British Museum is right after it. Um, anyways, uh, back in 2015, they were doing some of this, some routine cleaning, and the beard came off accidentally. Um, and according to British media reports in particular, uh, the Egyptian conservators uh, quickly 
reattached it using everyday epoxy glue. Uh, and they called it the botched beard incident. And archaeologists around the world, not just archaeologists, but uh, they, they basically lost it. Um, and they rehashed <laughs> a lot of these same racist narratives, you know, saying things like, uh, the conservators there didn't have the proper training or resources um, you know, to fix the beard properly, um, or they weren't capable of fixing it properly, or they didn't care enough to fix it properly and just wanted to do it quickly so nobody noticed. Um, and it was like they, they characterized it <clears throat> as really vindictive. You know, they used words like reckless. They used words like they were doing it without a conscience. Um, and eventually, eight museum staff were fired, and the museum brought in this team of German conservators to fix it. You know, so it was this weird moment where Egyptologists and the media uh, and the public were basically making the same racist arguments that they had been making throughout the 19th uh, you know, century. Um, one like interesting also uh, uh, side note about that story is that when Tutankhamun's mask was um, uh, discovered in 1922 by British archaeologist Howard Carter, the beard wasn't even on it. Uh, they reattached <laughs> it afterwards. <laughs> but, you know, this is, we think of the beard attached, and so Western archaeologists, you know, freaked out. <laughs> right. It's, wow. It's, it's this very, like, paternalistic attitude yeah. towards... Um, museums and museum workers that, you know, lay outside the bounds of Western control. Yeah. Um, and we saw that with the, and we talked about it when we were talking about the Brazil museum fire that, yeah. you know, there was a bunch of people in Europe and the United States saying that, well, these people clearly can't take care of their things, so they should give it to us so that we can take care of it properly. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, that, you know, that, that mask is like also kind of represents this really contentious moment, too, in terms of, you know, British and Egyptian relations when it came to antiquities, because it was one of the first moments where, Egypt, where um, the Egyptian government was essentially saying, no, you can't take this stuff to the British Museum, we're keeping it. Um, and so, like, it's almost like they have, you know, in a way we haven't stopped saying, yeah, we need to bring that stuff to the British Museum. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. and it's like countries that are not the United States and Europe have to jump through hoops to get these artifacts returned to them. But, you know, still this idea that, you know, the British Museum can come in and not have to jump through those hoops and just be like, give us your stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. it's in fact justification for not giving anything back either. Exactly. Uh, yeah. When it comes to repatriation. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I guess that's all the questions that we have for you. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for thanks for being on the show, um, and thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us. Thank you so much yeah, for absolutely. having me. Yeah, this has been great. I really enjoyed chatting. So that's going to do it for us. If you like our episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of our segments today, please tweet at us at at lady x science or use the hashtag lady pod for show notes episode transcripts to sign up for our monthly newsletter read monthly issues pitch us an idea and more visit ladyscience.com we are an independent magazine and we depend on support from our readers and listeners you can support us through a monthly donation with patreon 
or through one-time donations, just visit ladiescience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at LadiescienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at, at LadyXScience.